Welcome to the Enemy of Light and Dark podcast. You won't know what's before you. You won't know what's around you. You're going to bump into walls and you may lose all orientation. But here to guide you through it all, your host, Stephen Alexander Hamilton, and his trusty sidekick, the phenomenal guide dog, Sumiko. Stephen Hamilton, and you're listening to the Enemy of Light and Dark podcast. And not to mention that we are now live in Reno, Nevada. I just want everybody to realize that it is live for us here. So you are listening to somewhere in the past. And today is a very special episode because I have a very special guest. His name is Paul the Magnificent. Spiritual Nugget, Eye in the Sky Shipman. Paul knows more about me than just about anybody when it comes to me going blind because he was there during the beginnings of the time that I was going blind. We thought we would bring him in, get his perspective on what it was like. Let me introduce Paul. Paul, are you out there? I'm here, Stephen. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me, and I'm hoping that people will enjoy listening to your podcast and we'll spread the news. Oh, he's so kind. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, thanks, Stephen. My name is Paul, and I am Stephen's friend. The other thing that I am is I'm a helicopter pilot. I fly firefighting helicopters. I'm a father and a husband. One of the great things about visiting Reno is that I always get to visit my friend Paul. I wanted to bring him in this evening to give his perspective on what it was like meeting me and the challenges that I was going through during the time. And I thought it might be interesting for all of you, too, to listen to what it's like to meet a blind person for the first time. So, Paul, can you give a little insight, possibly starting it off where we first met all of those little stories? Certainly. So, I first met Stephen at a meeting that we were attending, and he spoke at that meeting. He mentioned that he was blind. He was wearing sunglasses, so it was a little bit easier to tell because we were indoors at night. (laughs) And he spoke somewhat during that meeting about some of the difficulties that he was going through because he was starting to have pressure buildup, I believe, in his eye at that time, the beginning stages of it. Things were difficult for him. At that meeting... Another friend of ours who had brought Stephen to that meeting pawned him off to me (laughs) because he had other things that he needed to go do. And it turned out to be a huge blessing for me because I got to take Stephen home. So from that beginning, I had to kind of figure out what do you do as a sighted person trying to help a blind person? I used common sense and then asked Stephen what to do. And he talked me through it. And it was pretty simple, just following what he said to do. We spent quite a bit of time talking. He told me a lot about some of his journey going blind, and we started a friendship that uh, went on from there. So that evening, we got to know each other. One of the funny things from that evening was we were sitting at Stephen's home talking, and he stopped me and said, hey, where did your head go? (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) And I was like, 
didn't know what was happening, but he explained to me that all he could see, because at that time he still had limited vision and he had been able to see my silhouette, but my head had disappeared. So he was seeing a headless silhouette. <laughs> but those were the good old days when Stephen could still see silhouettes. <laughs> I guess some things to say about developing a friendship with Stephen and learning to help. A lot of the times I just imagined if I couldn't see, how would I want somebody to help me? The other thing I remember from that time period and to this day is always feeling very protective of Stephen, always being upset with people in public because it's amazing how many people don't pay attention or don't notice that somebody is disabled and somebody else is trying to help them. I spent a lot of my time trying to make sure people didn't run into Stephen. Those were some of the things I remember. Yeah, I do too. I remember going to places and you almost getting in between me and the other person, which I really appreciated. Those kind of things naturally don't happen. I think it fostered a part of our relationship. I felt pretty natural helping you out. And like I said, to begin with, one of the things I did is I would always ask you what you needed. Quite often, I would make sure that I was aware, make sure that somebody wasn't going to bump into you or things like that. There was a simpatico between us. It was awfully funny because places that we went, people would congratulate uh, <laughs> Paul on how nice it was that he was helping me um, as a disabled person. Paul, why don't you take it from there? So one time in particular, th this happened on several occasions, but one time in particular, another friend of ours, very lovely man, he's since passed on, he came up and two things happened here. One of the things that would quite happen with Stephen is people would talk to me as if Stephen wasn't there. And Stephen would be standing right there and people would talk to me and talk about Stephen as if he didn't exist. And that always bugged me. And so this lovely gentleman who really truly was a lovely gentleman, but he came up and was talking to me as if Stephen wasn't there. And he said, oh, Paul, it's so wonderful that you're being of service and helping Stephen out. And I said, well, I'm not being of service. Stephen's my friend. I'm just being a friend. And Steve and I talk about that a lot because it's a good point that a lot of people don't recognize we're just friends. And this is what friends do for each other. I suppose some people help people out professionally and or just to be nice. But Stephen's my one of my very best friends. So I simply do what I do because I love him. Yeah. There were a lot of situations that towards the end of having to have my eye removed the pressure in the eye had started to grow to the point where pain was not being relieved by conventional medication. And I would call up Paul. Paul would inevitably take me to the ER. Is that That's right, correct. Brian? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember those, those periods. The, the frustration was that Stephen had so much pain. It seemed like nobody really knew what to do about it. And Stephen has a very high threshold for pain because of all the things he's been through in his life. So when Stephen was expressing the debilitation he was feeling from the, from the pain, I knew that it was really bad. The pressure in his eye was so bad that it felt like it was going to explode. So there were periods where he would feel like he wanted it out. But one of the things that I recall from that time was it seemed to me after time after time of this eye being a problem that it would be best just to take it out. But it was remarkable how, how attached we are to these things that we have called eyeballs. And Stephen was <laughs> so determined not to have his eyeball removed, even though it was causing him intolerable pain. But eventually, he had to concede and, and have it removed. Yeah. That was a very difficult time for Stephen. The psychological trauma of thinking about having your actual eye removed and losing that forever was a big deal for him. I remember that thinking 
that it was very traumatic. I am very vain, and <laughs> and the thought of the disfigurement was almost too much to bear. Yes. The only thing worse was years later when you had to lose your other eyeball. And I was only there on the phone for that. But that was an even worse thing for you because now you were not going to have any vision at all. That was really traumatic. Yeah, that's right. That's when I had a little bit of light perception. Even then, that light perception was so painful that oftentimes, if going outside, Cindy would have to put a jacket over my head in order Mm -hmm. to get to the car. It just became too much. We all decided, doctors, myself, that it, it finally needed to be removed. One of the things I think that is interesting for our listeners to get to know about is the fact that, well, first of all, Paul and I are in a 12-step program and have been for a very long time. There was a period of time in my sobriety that I was a very outward type of person. I could walk into any room and work the room and felt very confident. But as I lost my vision and my vision began to degrade, I didn't have the ability to have the eye contact anymore. And what I felt was more overwhelmed because of all of the noises that were coming at me in all different directions, which made me feel very shy. What happened was I went to Paul and I said, Paul, you know, I'm not able to really make friends or feel like I'm fitting in here. And then, Paul, why don't you take it from there? Yeah. So Stephen is a naturally gregarious, outgoing person. I am a natural introvert. I'm very shy and introverted. And in this program, I was having to learn that if I want to make friends and talk to people, I had to go and talk to people. The program we're involved with is is very friendly, very loving program, but you still have to take that initiative yourself to go meet people. And so Stephen was going through a period where he was developing some resentment because people were not talking to him, even though our program really revolves quite a bit around people fellowshipping together. So I was new and not gregarious, and Stephen was an old-timer at this and gregarious, and I was kind of surprised at this, and I said, well, Stephen, you're going to have to learn to go reach your hand out. And he said, well, Paul, I can't see them, so I can't see to reach my hand out. I said, well, that's no excuse. You're going to have to figure out a way to reach your hand out. And the other issue is it's not so much that people are avoiding you, it's they don't know that they can come talk to you. I finally had to just take the bull by the horns So what I would do is I would walk into these meetings and I would yell out, hello, I'm here. That was the beginning. A lot of times people are very or can be standoffish to disabled people because it makes them feel mortality or I'm not really sure. But what I would do is I would sit down, I would turn to my person to my left and to my right and people to the forward and say, hello, I'm Stephen, and I'm here. This really was the beginning of me being able to feel like I fit into the group. Would you agree with that, Paul? Yeah. So I remember when Stephen started doing that, he would literally walk in the room and, hi, I'm here. And he would do things like saying, you know, I'm here. I can't see you. So I need you to come find me and different things like that to basically kind of help break the ice let people know that it was okay to approach him. And then when he would sit down, he would say, you know, who is this that I'm sitting next to? And he would kind of break that ice again, get people talking so that they knew that it's okay to talk to him. Right. I think ultimately that was the beginning of when I was able to start using humor to break the ice 
even further and making other people feel uncomfortable around me. I would say things like, you know, oh, it's good to smell you or various things like that, just to get the person laughing enough to where they felt comfortable talking to me. Yeah, and that that was another thing is I never had a problem with inappropriate humor around Stephen's blindness with him. Of course, I'm his friend, so that's one thing. But he would do that with people. He basically let people know it's okay to recognize that, hey, I'm blind, or especially after he'd lost an eye, was, you know, it's okay to talk about the fact that I've lost an eyeball. And if you know me, it's okay to joke around about this a bit. That was helpful to other people because they didn't know what they could talk about. Yeah, it's interesting that the disabled person was having to teach the able-bodied people (laughs) how to interact. At that time, I didn't know of any other blind person in Reno. And so wherever I went, I was the one that really had to put my hand out. Yeah, and and so we would see this everywhere we'd go, whether it was meetings, where we'd go to restaurants, wherever we went, people were shy around Stephen, didn't know how to treat him. Waitresses would always come and talk to me, and they would not talk to Stephen. They would take Stephen's order through me, and I would have to remind them, well, he's right there. He can he can do it for you. But again, most people have not run into a blind person, a truly blind person. They don't know. So you did have to teach them because they literally had no frame of reference for that. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems so long ago now, and partly because... The journey has been quite long, but those were very dark times for me, trying to make sense of the world around me. And quite frankly, I don't think I would ever want to go through that again. No, it it was rough just being your friend, witnessing this. And there was really nothing I could do to help other than try to listen. But yeah, it, it was a, definitely a very rough time for him. We've come to the time in the podcast where it's a sponsor break. Now that we're in Reno, Nevada, where all the casinos are and such, Paul, the magnificent, spiritual nugget, eye in the sky, shipment, our sponsor break. Wacky Wanda's House of Wonder and Merriment invites you to enjoy our carnal pleasures at 333 Loose Woman Drive. And in honor of Stephen, we're offering half off to all unsighted individuals. <laughs> And now it's time for Sumi to do her weather report. Sumi, come on. Come over here, sweet pea. Come on, up up in the chair. Okay, here's a treat. Here's a treat. Uh, she never works for free. I sense a ton of atmospheric pressure today. Wait, wait. Pardon me. My mistake. Sumi, thank you so much for that. So, Stephen, I was just remembering one of the funny times with Ruby. Well, Ruby, <laughs> I, I have to explain who Ruby is. So now everybody knows that Sumiko is my guide dog. Ruby was a service dog, but she performed a particular service for me when I was on immune suppressant drugs. Because I was on such a massive dose, she could tell when I was going to throw up or when I was fatigued, but she was old, very old. I got her used. <laughs> Paul, you might want to take back over. So one time we were at a casino in Reno and we were going to use the convention part of the casino and there was a walkway and 
So I'm walking with Steven and I kind of noticed that Ruby was acting strange. And then I noticed that she's squatting as she's walking <laughs> and she, I looked back and she'd left a little trail of poops. <laughs> and at back at the tail end of the trail of poops, there was a very upset looking employee of this, of that casino. So I got to help clean up the poops while Steven stood there and did nothing. Well, there are advantages of being blind. <laughs> you know, another thing I was thinking about, Stephen, that always cracked me up, facial expressions showing your disgust with people when we'd be in meetings and people would say things that, oh, were somewhat silly. And sighted <laughs> people will do that as well. But since we're sighted, we recognize and we'll tone our facial expressions down. But you would just make it quite clear that you disagreed with what people were saying. And it would quite often be quite comical because everybody would be noticing that Stephen is disagreeing with what this person is saying. I must say in my defense, <laughs> once you start losing your eyesight, you start forgetting that other people can see you. Yes. I can't see them, so they can't see me. I would inevitably, if somebody was saying something wacko or way askew or silly or something, I would drop my head uh, <laughs> very forcefully and do a heavy sigh and then shake my head. <laughs> and as I didn't realize that other people were looking at me, I often, I'm sure, looked very conspicuous. Yes, it was quite <laughs> obvious, quite often. <laughs> You know, in all things, we all progress and we get better over time. And I remember a phone call that Paul called me up this summer, in fact, and was very excited and very exuberant about something he had done at the airport. Paul, do you want to tell that story? Well, I don't know if I was excited and exuberant, but... I, I think you were. I called Stephen because, uh, <laughs> of course, being Stephen and the only blind person I know, I thought of him, but I was at the airport major airport and i noticed the gentleman with the cane and glasses who was obviously at least partially sighted to some extent but having a hard time and he was trying to find his way somewhere and nobody was helping him and he looked somewhat lost and i got up went and approached him made my presence known and said hi my name's paul you know can i help you you need any help? And he said, well, actually, I'm trying to find gate such and such. I said, well, that's down here. Would you, that's, you know, down here straight ahead of you about another 200 yards. If you'd like, I can help take you there. And he was quite shocked. He said something like, well, you know, I don't want to bother you. I said, it's no bother. And then he said, well, something along the line, asking why I was doing it. I said, well, my best friend is blind. So I understand a little bit about how hard it is to navigate spaces. I offered him my arm and we went down and we talked a bit as we went. I was there to help him, but I also let him know who was near him, that the gate agent was there, just there a couple of feet off to his right and got him situated. But I knew all that because of my experience with Stephen. There is another experience that you did call me up on. You were helping a kid through security and he was it was about his T-shirt. Oh, yes. I forgot about that one. That was the one I was exuberant about, probably. Yes, very yes. exuberant. So I was uh, another time in the airport, because I travel quite often for work in the summers. A uh, mother and a child who was obviously blind were there, and his t-shirt said, you're in my blind spot. And I just thought that was hilarious. I told him that I really liked his t-shirt, and he thought that was great. And the mother 
gave me a thank you for talking to him. Because again, quite often people don't talk to people who are disabled. But I just, I thought his shirt was awesome. And I, of course, went out on Amazon right after we got off the phone and bought the very same (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. So those are all times that are just extremely memorable, particularly with Paul, because most people don't realize that Paul and I generally over the last eight years, eight years? Yeah, eight and a half. Eight and a half years have talked almost every day. Yes. I have no other person that I talk to that regular except, of course, Cindy, the sound engineer, my girlfriend. But she's with me physically. <laughs> but, oh, did I say that right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, she's not with you physically, physically right, right now, now in that way. But, um, <laughs> but uh, Paul is definitely the one that we call and bounce stuff off of. Yeah, and same here. So Stephen's been a huge part of my life and has helped me through some of the more difficult things that have gone on in my life in the last several years. I'm one of his only friends that when he calls (laughs) me up, (laughs) I don't give him a solution. Oftentimes he talks to his friends and they want to fix the situation. I'm just like, well, you know, (laughs) you'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, Stephen never tries to fix anything. (laughs) So Stephen, what kind of a day are you? having how are you doing today well today has been a pretty rough day it's been a supernova day so Stephen has this issue that he talks about that basically leaves him quite often having a blinding light inside of his head and so when I call and talk to Stephen I always ask him how he's doing and he tells me if he's having a black day which is a good day doesn't sound like that would be a good day whether it's brown, which means that it's about to become white, or it's white, and then even worse is supernova. So supernova is when it's just intolerable for them. Yeah, that's, uh, those are the days that make it really hard because trying to go to sleep in a state like that is impossible. I woke up this morning at around 2.44, and it was already white, and so my <laughs> sleep was ruined. From the moment that I open my eyes, open, yeah, open my eyes. So how are you doing with the anxiety over that, Stephen? Because I know this last year you've been had ups and downs with it. There's been times where you've been very anxious, but it seems to me that over the last couple of months you've gotten a little bit better with the anxiety about it, but I'm not sure. That's actually a very good question. You know, there's several ways to answer that. To be quite honest, I have to have help medication-wise. It's not something that I'm overly thrilled about. When you feel like you're going to jump out of your skin, the anxiety is so bad, the medication does help bring me down enough to where I can think rationally enough that it's going to be okay and that I'm going to be okay. That's just, you know, what I have to do. So another question, one thing that I've noticed in talking to you, uh, sadly, since you live in the Great White North, I have to talk to you by phone most of the time, but I've noticed that sometimes we talk and you tell me that you're in a white day or it's a supernova day and you're very fatigued. Usually when you're in a supernova, you're very fatigued and it's it's very difficult for you to interact. But I've noticed that sometimes if, if you can be distracted, so if you're distracted by Cindy or if I can distract you and or if we can make you laugh it seems to help for a bit like it seems to distract you from it is that that's the way it seems to me is that the way it feels for you sometimes 
Yeah, it is. But unfortunately, you can't do that 24 hours no. a day. But yes, oftentimes when talking with Paul, we get on these subjects mixed in with, with laughing and it does bring down the severity of the anxiety during those times. Yeah, but eventually I can see when you're starting to wear out and then you have to say that you have to go. Yeah. With all things, it's important to, to put your hand out. I want Paul to tell a story that was the beginning of our friendship. So, as I said earlier, I'm pretty extreme introvert. I really don't talk to people. I still remember the first time I, I met Stephen. We were at a meeting and Stephen shared. And I was practicing what I was being taught, which was to get out of my shell and go talk to people a little bit. And so I simply went to Stephen after the meeting was over. We began to talk and we've been talking ever since. And it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship that is central in my life today. So if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have this friendship. And central in mine as well. I'm quite introverted and it's hard for me to reach out to people. There was that period when I met you, when you were having a really hard time because of your disability, being able to reach out to people, but we both had to learn how to reach out. So for me, I gained a new friend, a great friend, and you, as you were learning how to reach out to people through your disability, you gained a bunch more friends as well. And I just think that's an important message that even though we feel hampered by our disabilities, whether that's being introverted or blind, we have to learn to reach out to others. Otherwise, they won't know that they can talk to us. You're exactly right, Paul. Beautifully said. You know, we have to, regardless if we're introverted or extroverted or handicapped or not, we have to reach our hands out. Moreover, the message is the fact that if you're feeling alone, which being disabled can feel, or even introverted, that you take that step, that first step, and putting your hand out, and it will change your life. Well, we've come to the time in the podcast where, unfortunately, we have to say our goodbyes. I want to take this time to say goodbye to my dear friend, Paul the Magnificent Spiritual Nugget, Eye in the Sky, and how blessed I feel that he was able to come on the the show. Thanks for having me, Stephen. I want to leave this podcast like I always do, like all my psychiatrists at the end of my session have said, I'm sorry, we're out of time.